You're listening to a City on a Hill podcast. We'd love you to use and share this podcast, but please refrain from editing the content without permission from City on a Hill. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au. Thanks, Pastor Coy. We're reading this morning from Luke chapter 8, verses 26 to 39. Then they sailed to the country of the Gerasenes, which is opposite Galilee. When Jesus had stepped out on land, there met him a man from the city who had demons. For a long time he had worn no clothes, and he had not lived in a house but among the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him and said with a loud voice, What have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I beg you, do not torment me. For he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. For many a time it had seized him. He was kept under guard and bound with chains and shackles, but he would break the bonds and be driven by the demon into the desert. Jesus then asked him, What is your name? And he said, Legion. For many demons had entered him. And they begged him not to command them to depart into the abyss. Now a large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him to let them enter these. So he gave them permission. Then the demons came out of the man and entered the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and drowned. When the herdsmen saw what had happened, they fled and told it in the city and in the country. Then people went out to see what had happened, And they came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had gone, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it told them how the demon-possessed man had been healed. Then all the people of the surrounding country of the Gerasenes asked him to depart from them, for they were seized with great fear. So he got into the boat and returned. The man from whom the demons had gone begged that he might be with him. But Jesus sent him away, saying, Return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. And he went away, proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. And uh, good morning, everyone. It's great to be with you. I don't know about you, but I have this strange mix of responses whenever I hear about the spiritual realm and the demonic At one level, I just find it really scary, really unnerving. There's something mysterious and unsettling about it. These are powers that I do not properly understand, and I find them intimidating. And yet at the same time, there's also something kind of tantalizing about this, something fascinating and even intoxicating about the spiritual realm, something intriguing. And I suspect this is a common experience for lots of people. Movies like The Exorcist are popular because they're exciting. Yes, they're scary, but people actually enjoy being scared by it. And yet, of course, for for many people in our culture, this is still kept at a distance. For people in the Western world, in places like Australia or Britain or the US, the very idea of the devil is kind of fanciful. People see him as made up, a figment of the imagination, a medieval superstition not belonging in our modern scientific world. In fact, they probably see the devil as a kind of construct of religious leaders seeking to control people with fear. 
And yet that doesn't mean that people don't speak of the devil. People do, but in very different terms. He's often seen as either mischievous, a kind of cartoon devil, or a fun little mascot for sporting teams, or a fire starter cube for your open fire, or something exotic and seductive, offering power and influence. And in fact, even if you're seen in negative terms, it's often in ways that fit our desires. So he is the perfect enemy, a computer game villain like Diablo against whom all violence is legitimate, someone that we can express our worst impulses on justifiably. Now, we should know that the way that we think and approach the devil in the Western world is very much a minority thing. In most parts of the world and in this, in most times in history, people, uh, the devil is not just a random academic subject or a fun thing to play with. He is real and vivid and powerful, a troubling reality. And that's what we see in this passage today. Today, we see Jesus come face to face with a man uh, who is possessed by demons. The stage is set. Uh, in the verse 27, uh, they're in Jesus and his disciples have come to the country of the Gerasenes. They've sailed across the Sea of Galilee. And when they get to the other side, they're confronted by this man who we're told had demons. He is in the hold of demon possession and demonic influence. His name is Legion. And this is a terrifying insight. You see, a Roman legion had thousands of troops in it. And so the implication here is that this man is possessed by a multitude of demons, a great army of violent spirits that are pillaging him. And we see that in verse 27. For a long time he had worn no clothes and he had not lived in a house but among the tombs, a kind of cursed place. In Mark's gospel, where we're told the same story, we read that night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. As one writer says, the the man was completely given over to the forces of darkness and helpless to resist their control. He can't resist their demons and no one else can either. Verse 29, we're told that the people try to restrain him, but he cannot be restrained. He was kept under guard and bound with chains and shackles, but he would break the bonds and be driven by the demon into the desert. He would then be a terror to everyone around him and even to himself. Kent Hughes writes, in his lucid moments, this man surely realized how repulsive, unloved and unwelcome he was. He was dehumanized, animalized, marginalized, and both frightening and fearful. What incredible misery. This then is what confronts Jesus. And as we study this story, this encounter between Jesus and the demoniac, I want to help us to see two things in particular. The first thing is that demons are real and powerful. It's been said that the greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world he didn't exist. Uh, as one writer says, we, we, we need to fight the devil, but we won't do this unless we acknowledge their existence. See, the devil does exist, and demonic influence is both powerful and dangerous. Ephesians 6, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And so we have to be armed. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, Paul says, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. But how do we know when the devil is oppressing us, attacking us? How do we spot 
demonic influence. I said at the top that in many parts of the world, the demonic realm is not something that's just to titillate or to entertain. It's something tangible. So why don't we see that here? Well, a couple of thoughts on that. First of all, I think that the devil might be too smart for it. I feel like the devil's tactics are deliberately subtle here. The devil chooses not to come out in the open and works instead in more cunning and subtle ways. Think, for instance, about the tactics that he used in the Garden of Eden. I think he's using them again and again in our world. Just think about what the devil says to Adam and Eve, Genesis 3, verse 5. God has forgiven, uh, he says to them that God has forbidden these things to them because he fears that their eyes would be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And don't we hear this temptation again and again? First of all, we're we're told by the devil, we're, we're told by the culture around us that God is power hungry that is deliberately limiting us, holding us back so we may, so that we don't rival his power. His rules then restrict freedom rather than protect it. That's what we're told. And so the answer is for us to define morality, for ourselves, for us to choose what is right and wrong, what is good and evil, without reference to our creator. We don't need God because we're smart enough and powerful enough to run this world, to create the world we want to make. And so I think that the devil is doing lots of stuff, but we just don't see it. But my second thought is that I actually don't think that we see even the obvious things that he's doing it. Recently, a video started going around social media from Philadelphia in America. I don't know if you saw it. It goes for about two minutes. And it's filmed from a car driving through the back streets of this city, showing drug addicts wandering around in a daze. It is quite shocking and eye-opening, that most of them are stooped over and semi-comatose. All life and humanity and dignity is being taken from them. Some of them literally look like zombies in some zombie movie. What if that is the work of the devil? I mean, I don't think that these people are being possessed by the devil. I think they're being possessed by drugs. But surely the devil is working through these drugs to hold them, to control them. You see, it seems to me that from this story here in Luke 8 and lots of other stories, that the devil's goal is to dehumanize us. Humanity alone, out of all creation, has the dignity of being made in God's image. We alone, among everything else, have this identity, have this responsibility to experience and express the grandeur of God. And so the devil will always seek to sabotage that, to dehumanize us. Sometimes that's really obvious and direct, like here in this story with the man possessed by the demons. But at other times, it's more indirect and more refined. The devil works through other things to hold and degrade us. He controls people through lust or greed or ambition or anxiety or addiction. Ken Hughes writes, we must recognize that anything that is degrading and animalizing to humans is in line with Satan's plan. And so we see here that demons are real. They are powerful. But here's the second thing we must understand, that Jesus is more powerful. That's what we see here in this passage. Exorcisms were a regular feature 
of Jesus' ministry. In Luke 4, for instance, he exercises someone in Capernaum. Then in Luke 11, he he releases a blind, mute demoniac. In fact, Mary Magdalene was gripped by seven demons, we're told, in Luke 8. And here, as he faces this man, we're told in verse 29 that he commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. I want you to notice a couple of things about this encounter between Jesus and this man. First of all, I want you to notice how the demons initiate the encounter. They don't wait for Jesus to come to them. They approach him. Verse 28, when he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him and said with a loud voice, what have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I beg you, do not torment me. The demons seem to be speaking through the man here. And they do this with a full recognition of who Jesus is. He is the son of the most high God. Now, this doesn't mean, of course, that they're worshipping Jesus, but they certainly understand who he is long before his own disciples do. And recognising who he is, they also see, they understand that they are out of his league. They know that he gets to decide their fate. So they start pleading with him. Verse 31, they begged him not to command them to depart into the abyss. Uh, The abyss was believed to be the final dwelling place of the devil and his angels, the place of their judgment. Matthew 25, 41, Jesus said that there is an eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. This judgment was anticipated to be at the end of time, but these demons are worried that they're going there straight away, and so they plead for mercy. And at first glance, it looks like Jesus actually gives it to them. Verse 32, now a large herd of pigs was feeding there in the hillside and they begged him to let them enter these. So he gave them permission. Then the demons came out of the man and entered the pigs and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and drowned. Now, this is a very strange moment. Uh, It seems like Jesus is acceding to their pleas their pleas, and it ends up with a whole bunch of pigs dying. Like, why would Jesus do this? Well, there's lots of different interpretations of this. One thought is that Jesus is trying to demonstrate the chaotic power and destructive power of the demonic. But it's also really important to note that it's a demonstration that Jesus is always in control. At first, it looks like he's just accepting and going along with what they want, but I'm not sure that that's true. See, I imagine that the demons wanted to possess the pigs so that they can continue their malign influence on the region, but instead they just career off over the cliff and into the abyss that they feared. Chuck Sindwell writes, Jesus had condemned evil to drown in its own chaos. And so we're being told here that Jesus is very clearly in command. And it's probably helpful here to note the context of this story. Uh, You see, just before this story in Luke 8, there is this beautiful, the wonderful story of Jesus calming the storm. Uh, They're on the Sea of Galilee. Jesus and his disciples get caught in this sudden storm. The disciples are all panicking, but Jesus stays asleep. Finally, they wake him up and he calms the storm. He awoke and rebuked the wind and the raging waves and they ceased and there was calm. And we're told in 8.25 that the disciples were marveling and said to one another, who then is this that he commands even winds and water and they obey him? That They just can't believe Jesus's power. And that sets the scene for this story. As one writer puts it, after his confrontation with nature's storm, Jesus would now confront an equally violent storm in human nature. So Luke then is trying to show us the power of Jesus over nature and here over demons. 
over evil, over the things that would bind humanity and dehumanise us. You see, what I'm just so struck by is how uh, intimidated the demons are when they confront him. Just think about it. They controlled this man and they were able to terrify everyone around them, but now they shake in fear. And I want you to see how different this is to all the movies. Like in the movies, there's these big, long incantations and someone has to fight and it's almost a a physical wrestle to, to release someone from demons. But that's not what we see here. Jesus seems to speak quite clearly and calmly because he has authority. As one writer puts it, there's not the slightest hint of good versus evil in this passage if you think evil has any chance against good. The demons know the moment that they see Jesus that God has just stepped on the scene and they tremble in his presence. So, yes, demons are real and they are powerful, but Jesus is more powerful. And God offers us this story to reassure us of that. You see, it's easy for us to be intimidated by the spiritual realm, by our spiritual opponents. And we are told throughout Scripture that we must be on guard and we must be careful. We should never be arrogant. 1 Peter 5, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. So So we must be aware of this. There are demonic forces seeking to destroy us. And we've all experienced this in some form or another. We might experience it as a great temptation to sin. We might feel the heaviness of discouragement. We might find ourselves held back by condemnation, the sense that God cannot accept us. For some people, there is the difficulty of opposition and even persecution as the devil stirs up people against us. And so we feel the strength of this. But we must not be overcome by fear because Jesus is stronger than the devil. He is our shepherd protecting his flock from the prowling lion. And the strong Jesus in this passage offers us his strength now. The devil has always been the great enemy of humanity. It was the devil's influence on Adam and Eve that brought the fall. It was his tempting, his prompting, his sedition that sowed destruction for humanity and for the world. Adam and Eve were responsible for their sin, but it was certainly the devil's intention to make them sin. John 8, 44, Jesus says he was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. He's the great saboteur of God's world and he wants to destroy us. But Jesus came to destroy him and save us. 1 John 3, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Now, of course, the devil understood this, and so naturally he sought to destroy Jesus. We saw in week two of this series how he assailed Jesus and tried desperately to draw him into sin, to sabotage his saving work right at the start, but he failed. Still, he kept going, stirring up the hearts of men to oppose Jesus I'm really struck in Luke 22, we're told that Satan entered into Judas Iscariot so that he went and betrayed Jesus. The devil was working in and through Jesus, uh, Judas to destroy Jesus. And I suspect that the devil thought that he had won when Jesus was crucified. We know 
that the Jewish religious leaders who knew the Old Testament back to front believed that their Messiah was going to be a great king, a great rescuer. And so it's likely that the devil thought the same. And so when Jesus was crucified, he may well have assumed that he had won, that he had crushed the king, and even better, had gotten God's own people to do it. And yet we know that what looked like Christ's defeat was actually his moment of triumph. Jesus took on flesh, Hebrews 2, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Human sin, our sin, is the great poison in this world, and so God came into the world to suck it out. Sin brings death, physical, spiritual, eternal, leaving us in the thrall of darkness and evil, and so Jesus died to save us from it. The wages of sin is death. Jesus paid the price of our sin and set us free from its penalty, and his resurrection confirms this. Colossians 2.13, and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by cancelling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. And know what Paul says next, he disarmed the rules and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. The devil sought to bring death into this world. But the death of Jesus actually brings life. By giving his life, Jesus overcame the devil's plans and gave us new life. To anyone who comes to Jesus in repentance and trust can know him and know that they are secure in him forever. Later on today, why don't you read Romans 8. Verse 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Verse 34, if God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. And so he concludes in verse 38, I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. For those who have come to Jesus in faith and repentance in trust and humility, there is security. You're with Jesus now and the devil cannot destroy you. Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ. Even when we sin, we are loved and cherished by God. We might feel weak and burdened and incapable, but we have God working in us and through us. And so we have that power. 1 John 4, he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Jesus is greater than the devil. Now, how will we respond to this power? You see, there's actually a couple of responses that we can have, and we see them in this story. First of all, we see the response of the townspeople, verse 34. When the herdsmen saw what had happened, they fled and told it in the city and in the country. 
Then people went out to see what had happened, and they came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had gone, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. They were afraid. It's interesting. That's exactly the response that the disciples had when Jesus calmed the ways. We're told they were afraid. You see, there's something eerily calm about God's power. He can calm the the raging waves and he can calm this raging heart, this demonic person. And the people were so used to seeing this man wild and untamed, gnashing and writhing, cutting himself, but now he's in his right mind. He's normal again. And they're intimidated by this because they sense that they have are encountering the supernatural, something unusual, something different, something out of this world. Now, it's actually understandable that they would feel this kind of fear, but what happens next is not acceptable. Verse 37, Then all the people of the surrounding country of the Gerasenes asked him to depart from them, for they were seized with great fear. So Jesus got into the boat and returned. They ask him to get out of there. They, they, they push him out of the town. Really, they can't handle this. They know that he's powerful. They feel like he's just too powerful, and so they don't want him around them. Now, at first glance, this might seem surprising, but I don't think it's actually unfamiliar. See, often people talk kind of glibly about the supernatural power of God. We're kind of intrigued by it. We all say that we'd like to see something spectacular. We might even demand it of God. But when God shows up, and something dramatic actually does happen, our response might surprise us. Some people are won to God's power, won by God's greatness and the supernatural, but many are overwhelmed by it and want him to get away from them. Why is that? I think it's because his power points to his authority. If Jesus can rule the waves and the evil spirits, then he can rule over us. He has the right to rule over us. And so I think we, we kind of resist this. And so many people would actually rather live in a world without the supernatural. And so we, in our culture, for instance, we live, uh, we live in a world where people view things as purely physical and scientific. They want nothing beyond the senses. They want an existence that they can encompass with logic and learning. No surprises, nothing that we can't work out. Now, there is a cost to this. If there's nothing beyond this world, It all becomes a bit stale after a little while. Charles Taylor has written this amazing book about the secular age, says that in time, when we live like this, uh, our actions and our goals and our achievements have a lack of weight, of gravity, of thickness and substance. People sense that there's something missing. But people would actually rather that. They'd rather have a world devoid of ultimate meaning. They'd rather have that then bend the knee to Christ. A small world that we can rule is better than a big world that he rules. And so people kind of create this canopy over the world that God cannot penetrate. And yet he still rules it, whether we like it or not. When the devil encounters Jesus once more at the end of time, both the devil and all who have followed him will be forced to bend the knee. And so will all humanity. And so we either respond to his power now or we'll respond to it then. There's no other option. So why don't we respond to it now? And that's what we see 
in the beautiful example of the man. Verse 38, the man from whom the demons had gone begged Jesus that he might be with him. Uh, One of the other interpretations of the whole pig incident is that Jesus actually wants to help this man see that he's truly healed. Just think about this guy. He's he's spent so, so long, probably years, tormented by these demons. Jesus has delivered them from him, and now he gives him this visible sign that they've been totally driven out. They won't be coming back. They're gone. They're done for, and he is now free, and he knows what he wants to do with that freedom. Jesus has done this wonderful thing for him, and so he wants to honour him. Jesus has given him back his life. And what does he want to do then? Well, he wants to give his life back to Jesus. He wants to follow him. He wants to worship him. It's interesting then how Jesus responds to this. Jesus sent him away saying, return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. Uh, Jesus is grateful, I'm sure, for the man's dedication, but he asks him to express that dedication in a different way. He wants him to become an evangelist, to tell the good news. And it's worth noting where this man is. Uh, the Gerasenes were a mixed people, both Jews and Gentiles, living together. And so this is actually amazingly significant. Jesus is expanding his ministry. He'd come to the Jews to be their Messiah, but his plans were bigger than that. These plans were for the whole world. And as he moves out into the country of the Gerasenes, he's giving the first sign of what he has to do. And so this man is one of the first people to be sent out among the Gentiles to proclaim the message that Jesus is the Lord and Saviour of all the world. And that's exactly what this man does. Mark 5, he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis, which is a, a set of 10 cities around this area, how much Jesus had done for him and everyone marvelled. He, he's on the front lines of talking about Jesus. And I love his message. Jesus says, declare how much God has done for you. And then the man proclaims throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. Do you see that? He understands that those are one and the same thing, that to declare how much God has done for him is is to declare what Jesus has done for him. Jesus is God. The man understands this. The man understands that God has visited the world through Jesus, that in Jesus, God has come in power and in love and compassion. And, of course, that's exactly what Jesus said when he began his ministry. In Luke 4, Jesus stands up in the synagogue and he says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. This is what Jesus had come to do. Chuck Swindle writes, He had come to overthrow evil's dominion, to eradicate evil altogether, not merely to undo its damage one person and one problem at a time. Jesus had come and he'd encountered this man and he'd healed him because he wanted to heal the whole world and to show that the world that the devil has tried to sabotage still belongs to God, that God is greater, that God is better, that God has life for us. Now we're invited to do what this man did, to encounter Jesus, to encounter his power, his power over evil and over sin in us and in the world around us, to encounter this and not to be overwhelmed by the supernatural, 
but to be drawn to it, to be drawn to what he has done and to follow him. He gives us life and now invites us to give back that life for his glory. How about we pray? Lord, we pray, uh, as the Apostle Paul prays in Ephesians 1, that we will know the immeasurable power and greatness of Christ because of what he has done through the power of his resurrection. Lord, we uh, mourn the presence of sin and evil in this world, and we accept it's not just the devil's fault, it's our fault too. We accept that we are sinful. We thank you, though, Jesus, that you came to deliver us from this sin, to forgive us and to set us free. Lord, I pray that we might know your great power, the power that triumphed over sin and over the devil. May it triumph over evil in our hearts and our lives. And may we, like this man in this story, know your freedom and proclaim it to the world for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au.